At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. set up in there, please, just to hold it there for a second, because uh, tonight, as part of the vast public service, uh, um, far-seeing, uh, hard-hitting outlook on the part of this deeply concerned uh, uh, member of the media, we're taking this opportunity uh, to salute a little-known part of our society. Well, it's certainly a well-known part of our society, but little saluted. Please. Please. <laughs> 
despite this concern, the member of the vast media of America takes this opportunity as part of our public service programming to salute a little-known but highly visible minority within our population. A great American institution, the Sorehead. Tonight we salute a magnificent curmudgeon. Hold it there, hold it there, hold it there. Uh, reset that there, I may need that. Uh, you know, speaking of... Uh, of curmudges, that's a great word. You know, it's too bad that uh, so many of the uh, so many of the 19th century words are no longer used. Curmudgeon. That, that <laughs> even if you didn't know what a curmudgeon means, you'd know what it means. Just been hearing the sound of the word curmudgeon. A curmudgeon. Uh, you know, any other 19th century words like that? Just you know, hanky panky. By the way, is a 19th century word. Hanky-panky. You know, that's a Victorian word, uh, which has survived. Uh, you know any others? Oh, you do, but you don't, you don't know that you know them. Curmudgeon. Well, uh, they had great words, for example, to describe various aspects of life. For example, gallimaufry. You know what that word is? You do not know. Well, the word gallimaufry... That's a good one for you to look up. Gollumoffrey. That's the kind of word that W.C. Fields would have used. I don't know whether he did, but he could have. He did? Well, the only... <laughs> how, did he, how did he use it? He, he did use it. Well, Gollumoffrey is a great 19th century word. And he says, Hi, George. I can see great Godfrey. Life is nothing but a Gollumoffrey. What kind of Gollumoffrey am I walking into here? Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, these are great words, but the, 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 the phenomena, though, remains, regardless of whether the word disappears or not. The fact that we don't use the word uh, <laughs> curmudgeon does not mean we don't have curmudgeons among us. We certainly do. Now, what is a curmudgeon? Well, a curmudgeon roughly is a Scrooge. He's a curmudgeon. You know, he's a guy that uh, as soon as somebody comes in and says, uh, Hey, Chief, gee whiz, did you hear about the... Uh, we're going to raise a collection for poor Tiny Tim. And he says, Bah, get out of here! Uh, bah, humbug! That's, uh, that's a curmudgeon, right? Uh, now, uh, the curmudgeon has found his place in the, in the, the popular literature. In fact, uh, there was a cartoon strip that had a famous curmudgeon in it. What was that cartoon strip? In fact, I will give you a clue. His, the name that he used in the strip was the terrible-tempered Mr. All right, we'll drop that. Uh... Oh, no, these are, these are all historical comic strips. Don't immediately write to me and say, Oh, you must be my age because I remember that strip. No, I am uh, somewhat of a student of the comic strip, and, I, and I've read a lot of books on the subject. And there's one famous cartoon strip that involved a trolley. You don't know about that strip. Well, that's your cultural loss, then. Uh, it is, too, as a matter of fact. Now, here is the guy I'd like to... I just, just got... This guy has to be recognized. Uh, you know, some people just never get... And I happen to have seen this thing. This is why I want to... <laughs> this is why I want to report this. Uh, this is a, is a piece that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is a great comic newspaper...
the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the, it, it, uh, it is Dateline, Hiawatha, Kansas. Now, wouldn't you like to know this guy, have known him in his day? Listen to this. And here it includes a picture. You'll see it later. And the headline says, $250,000 spite memorial is sinking, and no one cares. Hiawatha, Kansas. John M. Davis's $250,000 memorial, despite his wife's family, is slowly sinking into the ground. No one seems to care, says Cecil A. Gannon, banker and secretary of Hiawatha's Mount Hope Cemetery. Yeah, there are no funds for the upkeep of the statues to maintain the memorial, and nobody seems to care. Davis, an eccentric farmer. Now, I don't know whether he was eccentric or whether he just was on the truth. You know, you can often be called eccentric if you get out of the truth of what's going on around you. You realize that. Uh, Davis, an eccentric farmer who died in 1947 at the age of 92, was recognized by one and all as the most disliked man in town. Did you hear that line? He was the most disliked man in town. <laughs> and I want the Kansas. I mean, everybody recognized. That's that's what adds. See, think of these things. He's, you know, there there can be guys that are disliked, but the fact that he is universally recognized as being the most disliked man in town that is a distinction. You know, if you go and he spent his fortune on the elaborate memorial over the graves of himself and his wife. He spent every cent he had, and then died in the poorhouse. The county paid for his funeral. Uh, you know, townspeople have always been resentful about the memorial, said Betty Crock, the elderly cemetery caretaker. They think that old man Davis wasted his money in a very selfish way when he could have built a swimming pool for the kids in town or help erect a hospital that was desperately needed when he was alive. Davis was not sympathetic. What do you mean? What's this town ever done for me? He once said. I owe the town a damn nothing. That's what I owe this town nothing. The weekly, the wealthy farmer was an orphan. He and his wife, Sarah, were married 50 years. They had no children. He despised totally his wife's relatives. He didn't want them to be uh, getting any of their hands on his money when he died. He would leave them no money. So he built a strange memorial in Hiawatha, a farm center of over 4,000 people. He built this at the cost of over a quarter of a million dollars, a memorial. And it still exists. If you ever go through Kansas, you can stop by and see it. There are statues of Mrs. Davis, who died at the age of 70 in 1930, and of Davis as young lovers statues of Davis and his wife as young lovers seated discreetly at the opposite ends of a love seat. Davis is clean-shaven and has both hands. Other statues show him with a long beard and without his left hand, which he lost in a later accident. In other words, he has statues of his whole life, of him at different parts of his life and his family. They depict the farmer and his wife at various stages of their lives. The first statues commissioned by Davis shortly after his wife died were of Kansas granite. They show the farmer as a lonely man seated beside an empty chair bearing the inscription, The Vacant Chair. 
He liked the statues so well, he ordered several more, at a much greater cost. He had them made up this time of expensive marble by master sculptors in Carrara, Italy, from photographs of himself and his wife. This is first-class stuff. Davis said he decided to have the remainder of the statues created from marble because, and we quote him here, yeah, you know, granite is too coarse for a lady's features. Now, there was an elegant gentleman. Granite is too coarse for a lady's features. One statue shows Davis kneeling and placing a wreath in front of the tombstone, marking his wife's final resting place. Next to it is a statue of Mrs. Davis, also kneeling, placing a wreath on his grave. In this statue, Mrs. Davis is portrayed as an angel with wings. Mr. Davis had only one friend the last 15 years of his life, said Alfred Hansen, 86, Hiawatha banker. And you know who that friend was? That was Horace U. England, the town's, the town's tombstone dealer. Now he's dead, too. You imagine your only friend is the tombstone dealer in town? Now there's a guy that hung out to being rotten all of his life. It says England wound up with Davis's two farms, the farmer's home in Hiawatha, and most of Davis's money. I don't blame Mr. England for getting Uncle John's money, said uh, the great-niece, Martha Swain, of Mrs. Davis. Uncle John didn't want any of my aunt's relatives to get the money. He was sure sore at our family. In fact, he never talked to us. And you know why? Well, they thought that she could have married better. He was just a hired hand at the time, but that we were wrong. Uncle John did all right. He certainly made his bundle, but we didn't get any of it. Of course, you know, Auntie lived a frugal, simple life. She didn't like ostentatious things. Well, the town is in an uproar. They have argued for years over the upkeep of this giant memorial. Since Davis left no funds for maintenance, the city, which owns the cemetery, has to, had to cut the grass, and they've had to clean it. It costs about $1,000 annual to keep this thing looking decent. When Davis was finally laid to rest in 1947, the minister officiating at his service declared... Everyone is misunderstood. We all have our peculiarities. And there was that vast monument where he was giving the funeral oration, and only one person attended the funeral. And who was that? The tombstone salesman, Horace England, attended. Now, to me, uh, this, <laughs> this is a... This is a this is a, a classic American sorehead. And, and you don't see these kind of guys much in England. Uh, this is the real individual. I mean, really. And, and that reminds me of a thing that when I was a kid that was outside of our town. Uh, you, you don't see this kind of stuff in big cities much. And incidentally, I did not live in a small town. You know, I, I'm constantly surprised that guys write to me and say, You know, Shepard, you and I have a lot in common. I lived in a small town, too. Have you heard this? I come from a small town that's about as small and cuddly as Newark. The town that I came from, I repeat, for any of you who have any misunderstandings on the idea, was not a small town. I'm a, I'm a city type all the way, grew up in a city, and in fact, it was a big industrial city. You know, it's so funny. Uh, that people have strange ideas in the East about, about small towns and what constitutes a small town. In fact, most of them define any town outside of New York as, quote, a small town. If you grew up in Chicago, you probably grew up in small town life. That's fascinating. Uh, but yet, this the other day, I got a letter from a guy. He said, uh, 
asked, he said, you know, Shepard, he says, uh, I'm going to experience uh, a lot of the uh, small town life that you talk about on your show. He said, I'm really looking forward to it. I've been transferred to Detroit. And uh, wait till he gets to Detroit. Uh, in many ways, Detroit's a more sophisticated city than New York. <laughs> you agree? Absolutely. And, and uh, so I did not live in a small town. But that you run into things uh, that, that in, in other parts of the country that you don't see so clearly delineated here in the East. I don't know why. Maybe it's because the East has different mores or attitudes. And I suspect, according to one social uh, historian, that one of the reasons why you see these great individualists, uh, where you see these fantastic individual things uh, in areas outside of the Eastern area, places like Michigan, places like Ohio, is because in the early days of America's settlement that it was more or less the conservative type. You know, if people came from England, we'll say a whole boatload of people. Now, what kind of a guy would settle right away in the, in the first cities and stay there, period? He'd have to be a fairly conservative type compared to the guy that would continue out into the wilderness. I mean, he was much more of an individualistic type. And so they moved out. They, they, even then, you know, back in the 1700s, there were guys that got sick and tired of the city life in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> we think, you know, that was a big city. And he says, the hell with this, and he took off for, for, the, for the frontier. He was a different type of guy than stayed here. Uh, this is WOR New York. Tonight, instead of the usual before dinner, how about a Dubonnet before dinner? Before, that's the time to think about some Dubonnet to drink. Before's the proper time of day to have yourself a Dubonnet. Before, yeah, before. It's the time before for Dubonnet. Tonight, before you fix the usual, before you settle down with the same old thing, have a Dubonnet instead. Dubonnet's the wine that's made to go before lunch, before dinner. Just pour it over the rocks. Add a twist. Soda, if you like. That's Dubonnet before. Made to make what comes after that much better. Before, yeah, before. It's the time before for Dubonnet. Dubonnet Company, New York, New York. Cha-cha-da-chee-chee-chinatown, where the lights are low. Uh, it's time for our little commercial here for the House of Chen. Ring, ting, 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 ring, ting, ting. That's kind of nice, you know. Uh, if you, uh, friends, uh, have never tried the House of Chen, I would like to highly recommend it. It's a really great uh, Chinese restaurant here in town. Been here for 35 years, and they're in a great location. They're at uh, 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. And uh, they're open seven days a week. They've been there for a long time, and they produce some of the finest food in the business. Seven days a week, they have a bar, and they're open on Sunday, of course, and they're open till midnight. And if you're making a theater or something in town one of those nights, you just drop in there and tell them you're going to the show, and they'll get one of those walks hot, and they'll have the food ready for you, and you will be out, and you'll be making the curtain. House of Chan. Bump, ba dump bump. The year, 2001. The place, Long Island. The living conditions, pretty awful. Unless we start acting now to preserve and improve what we've got. 
This Sunday in Newsday's L.I. Magazine, writer Warren Berry gives you a look at the future. What will Long Island be like at the turn of the century? Will triple-decker highways run above our houses? Will there be Buck Rogers-type jet belts for commuters or the same old Long Island Railroad? In my article in Sunday Newsday, four planning experts take a hard look at the island's future. They show how Nassau and Suffolk could become unlivable or a model for the rest of the nation. And they tell why that choice is really up to all of us now. If you live on and care about Long Island, if your children will live here, you'll want to read this special report on Long Island's future in Sunday Newsday. Long Island's own newspaper. In the current issue of TV Guide magazine, a profile of Danny Villanueva, a former pro football player turned television executive. By crusading for the rights of Southern California's Spanish-speaking population, Villanueva has picked up the station's audience ratings and a handful of news awards, his story in TV Guide. In the same issue, TV Guide goes behind the news camera to find Lawrence Pierce, the dean of television photojournalists. By including life and depth in his footage, he's expanded news film into the area of fine art. This week, TV Guide's cover story looks at how the series Kung Fu is helping change the stereotype of Orientals and talks to some cast members who first helped to create the Chinese image. Informative reading in this week's issue of TV Guide, America's biggest-selling weekly magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. Now, when they went out, they, 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 they maintained that curious individuality. They're not as communal-minded as they are still to this day in the East, big city types. But I remember as a kid, now I don't know whether or not this still exists, but there was a guy who we used to go there on Sunday. Well, let's know, you know, these things, these things are pointed out. There were two, in fact, two characters like this that achieved, I believe, some kind of national recognition. There was one guy that set up, oh, it was about uh, 15 miles, probably, south, I would have to say south of Lake Michigan. Now, if you take a look at Lake Michigan, you see Lake Michigan hanging down. Why, is the problems in there? Okay. Right on the shore of Lake Michigan, there was a guy, believe it or not, who at one time set up a kingdom his own kingdom. Did you ever hear of this? That's right. He set up his own kingdom. And in fact, what he did was buy, apparently bought land. I don't know the history of this thing, except that we would go and look at it. That was one of the things we did on Sunday. We, you know, when, when you go for a Sunday drive, where do you go? Well, where do people go here in New York when they go for a drive? Uh, they, you know, they drive over to Jersey, or they drive around the country, or something like that. But when once in a great while, the old man would say, let's, let's go to this place. So we would drive there. Well, this guy had established a kingdom, and it was actually operating. That he, he, he set this thing up, and it was, it was a big tract of land. Now, he apparently bought an old farm or something there. It was right in this town, though, and it was all landscape that was green, and uh, they added uh, more land to it. And that was a big deal. It had, had a big establishment. And he, he, he set up a kingdom, and he was the king. Now, if you wanted to be part of that kingdom, you had to come there and give all your worldly goods to him. And, and, and you were then a subject. You were, you were part of this kingdom. And he then provided a house for you to live in and uh, 
with would uh, anything that had anything to do with any official laws or anything. He was the ultimate authority. He was the king, and he even told people how they could dress. He even set up the kind of architecture and everything. He, was, he created a kingdom, and he he was he was uh, living there, and he decreed that all men who live in this kingdom should have beards. They should not shave. So they had these giant beards. We, we'd be driving, you see these guys and these, these enormous beards. And he did not believe, apparently, in any kind of modern clothes. So he decreed that all men and women who lived in this kingdom would dress in what looked like, it was curious dress, it looked like, uh, well, like pictures you see of, uh, say, uh, the settlers in a town of 1830 someplace. Women had these long dresses down to their down to their ankles and they wore uh, little little jackets and with long sleeves and uh, they wore their hair back in a bun you know all this stuff and the men wore what looked like homespun pants they were they were like stovepipe pants they were strange looking pants with little black jackets with white collars with big black ties and they wore flat hats you know those flat hats that you see in pilgrim pictures these flat hats with big big brim and they had giant beards well, now, what was really fascinating about this place uh, was that was that the houses looked like nothing you've ever seen. If you've ever looked in, in, uh, in uh, well, let's say if you've ever looked at a copy of an illustrated uh, volume of the Oz series, you've seen The Wizard of Oz? Well, you know that strange fairyland architecture with the gingerbread all around it and little curly cues and little tiny doors with little hearts cut into them and and uh yeah really weird uh, strange great looking houses but they, the the color they were painted was incredible the 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 houses were painted red and pink and blue and the the, the all the all the uh, fringe the wooden fringe it was all kinds of strange cut out fringe had little towers all over it and little flags flying and everything was painted in a contrasting color like if you had a red house all the fringe was painted green with gilt gold all around it. And uh, everybody lived like this, all these houses. And these people walking around with big beards. And apparently they had jobs. Uh, th this was a self-sufficient kingdom. It, it, it had a, a little mill where it wove cloth. And these people would weave cloth for their own clothes, and they would work there. Uh, or, and it had a mill where they ground flour, and they would make their own bread. Uh, they had a uh, herd of cattle, and they would they would uh, make their own cheese. They had a little cheese mill and all. And it was a kingdom, literally a kingdom, and they called it a kingdom. Now, have you ever heard of that? That's the Midwest, friend. Uh, <coughs> I you know, it, it, people, it always amuses me. People come around and think the Midwest is conservative. This is where the really, the real cuckoo birds live. I mean, the real, <laughs> this guy had a kingdom. And he was, he, he, he was very famous, and people would come. For miles around, uh, and I, I remember I was, oh, I mustn't have been more than seven or eight at the time. My kid brother, we'd pile in a car, and we'd go and drive and look at this place because it was a big tourist attraction. People would drive around there, and they apparently would make money uh, to sustain themselves by selling various products of that place. So you could go there and you could buy some of their bread they made, or you could buy uh, uh, one of those strange hats. Uh, you could, you could, uh, but it wasn't in any sense really a tourist uh, attraction. It was actually a kingdom. It was right on the shore there by the lake, and it was in this Michigan town. Now, how do you like that?
And it was a kingdom that involved a succession. Because this guy, oh, oh, another thing that was very exotic about this place, I might point out one of the things, one of the, maybe one of the reasons why people moved there, it was polygamous. And so you would see one of these guys that would be walking around with his beard, his big red beard, and he had this big flat hat and this, this strange little black suit, and behind them would be about five women walking behind him, and those were his wives. <laughs> and behind her and them, there would be about 37 kids. And uh, they, they, they lived in this polygamous place. Now, uh, I don't even remember the name of this kingdom. It had a name. I don't remember the name of this kingdom. And uh, and it was a real kingdom. And, and they had their own policemen, incidentally, with their own uh, kingdom. Uh, they had great-looking uniforms. It looked like uh, uh, right out of... Uh, out of a movie or a, or a mythical kingdom created by Peter Ustinov. These guys had a you know a hat with two little tassels sticking out and a muzzle loader rifle and, <laughs> and all that stuff with, with the big uh, silver epaulets on their shoulders. And uh, they were the police. And you could only come there a certain hour. They would allow the gates to their kingdom to be open for people to come in. And they did not allow driving. That was another thing. They did not believe in cars, anything else. It was a kingdom. And... Uh, they, they, uh, you would have to park your car in a parking lot, and you would walk up to the gate, and they would let you into this kingdom, and you'd walk around these walks, and I can still see in my mind these rolling green. It was all beautifully trimmed, rolling green uh, hills with the uh, with the uh, hedges and great big shade trees, and all these wild-looking houses with green and yellow fringe all over them, and that's where the king lived. And you, you never got to see the king. He was he was remote. He was a true king. Uh, he was always in the castle, or at least uh, that's where his, uh, it was pointed out. And <laughs> they would take you around. Now, now there's nothing like that around here. Now then, now see, this is the kind of stuff you could do on a weekend. Now, on another, now to me, that's that's a classic example of a curmudgeon in action. He got sick and tired of the whole damn mess and set up his own kingdom. Now I don't know. <laughs> I mean, and, and I don't know where those people are today or anything about it. But but uh, it, as far as I know, it still exists. Now. There's another one. Now, this was really fantastic. Uh, if you think that, the, that, this, the, that this is something, that there was a town. Then when we didn't want to go to that place, we could drive to Illinois, right? That was a different state, see? Illinois was very close to Indiana. In fact, it was right across the state line. would be like uh, driving from New York to New Jersey. You know, it's a few miles. And uh, we would go to Illinois. This time, we would go up the other side of the lake. Lake Michigan seems to draw the cuckoo birds. We would draw, go up the other side of the lake, and, and, uh, and everyone would be very careful about coming into this town. Very, very careful. You had to be very careful. I can remember driving up, and the, and the old man had this old, see, we'd drive up, and we're in the back seat, and the old man says, all right, now, he says, now, don't, don't, don't uh, sit down, be very quiet, don't make any noise. Now, when we go through town, let's just watch, and we'll go through town very quiet. And he would be very careful about putting out his cigarette before we got into town. Now, I'll tell you why. When you drove into this town, right for starters, there was a great big sign. I mean, a sign was like two stories high, right on the highway, driving to town. Big sign. And it said, stop. Read these laws before you proceed. You are crossing the town line, and beyond this sign, you are in the name of the town. And there were the, the rules. In a great big, no smoking allowed in this town. 
That was the first rule. No swearing in this town. No cosmetics are allowed in this town. You must remove all cosmetics from your person before entering this town or be fined. No loud speech in this town, especially on Sundays. And it was a whole list of rules that you had to go by to come into that town. Now, that town had a dictator. I mean, a real, authentic dictator. He was not the mayor. He was the dictator of the town. And, in fact, it, the town was based on a religious sect. It was another one of these religious places. And they had this... The founder of this religious sect was the dictator of the town. And... and uh, <laughs> People would go to, and you'd have to, oh, another thing. The speed limit in the town was seven miles an hour. And, man, they meant it. In fact, uh, there were many stories of guys, you know, who drove in there, and like they came along at night, they drove in there going 20 miles, you know, 20 miles an hour. That's very slow in a car. And uh, getting picked up and fined $500 you know, for going 20 miles an hour. So they really meant it. So cars would come in, you slow up, and you barely crawl. You're going seven miles an hour through this town, and you would see these people, and you'd stop in the stores or whatever it was there, and these people did not believe in makeup, they did not believe in swearing, they didn't believe in anything at all, any, any, any kind of uh, uh, pleasure of any type. In fact, uh, there was a rule there that, that laughing out loud was considered blasphemous to the Lord, whatever it was, you see. Everybody's very sober. And you'd walk around town, just like eerie. Uh, and, and, and at no point in any store was there anything at all frivolous. They did not allow candy to be sold in the stores. Candy's fun. So obviously it has to be, uh, it has to be a sin. So <laughs> there was no candy. Uh, you couldn't go in there and buy a popsicle. And uh, we would just go in there, you know, and walk around just to see. And they sold, they sold stuff like, you know, as exciting as uh, oatmeal. You know, they'd have oatmeal there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they'd have a whole shelf of oatmeal. Uh, then there'd be a, a, a whole shelf of, uh, say, something as basic as uh, uh, dried peas, that kind of stuff. And the people had a curious pale quality to them. They, they, they looked absolutely pale. All the women's hair was pulled back, and they wore these high dresses up to their necks and down. And the men all wore black suits with black ties all the time. Every every man, little kids, you'd see a, a three-year-old kid wearing a black suit with a white shirt and a black tie, and he had this hat on. Well, the thing, though, that made this place even better than all the, you know, this, this doesn't sound like much, except for one important thing. You could buy in their stores, you could buy books by the dictator. Not only books, but various other things. For example, you could buy a map of the world that the dictator had decided the world was, including the town, of course, right in the center of that world. Now, one of the central beliefs that they believed in, one of their central basic tenets was this. They believed absolutely, absolutely, with, I mean, it was, it was blasphemous for you to consider it in any other way. They believed completely that the earth was flat. They, they believed the earth was flat. And uh, this was a town based on flat earthers. Have you ever heard of the flat earthers? You haven't? Well, there are people who, who still today hold to this, you know. And they believed that the earth was flat. They believed that any other 
any other doctrine to the contrary was either totally erroneous or was basically subversive and uh, and uh, and was so blasphemous that the that the work of the devil had had gone out and said that the earth was round. This was obviously not true because it just completely was. Uh, can be proven that it was flat as far as they were concerned it was flat so they had all these books about why the earth is flat it was kind of great to buy a book about that including a map of the actual earth that showed the edges of it where you could go where the edges fell off well now <laughs> this sounds like a joke but they really did believe it now I, I other things for example you could buy there and uh, and I remember going in there one time and uh, getting a book uh, when I was a kid we used to buy these little books for kids. See, they had books for kids. And this particular book, oh, by the way, that was another thing, very interesting, that the kids in the schools there were not taught anything except this particular religion and this particular belief. They were taught by law that the earth was flat. By law. <laughs> they, were, they were also taught, among other things, what stars are. Now, uh, this is a fascinating uh, theory, and I think uh, many of you may even believe this theory. You may even buy this one. Uh, the theory was, according to the dictator and the founder, he believed, uh, you know, when it was pointed out uh, to him by scientists that if the Earth is round, is if it's flat, uh, how do you account for the stars? And, and how do you account for the sun moving and all this and that, you know? Uh, how, what, what do you think about that? He says, well, this is pretty obvious what it is what the stars are. Are you curious what the stars are? Well, according to his theory, the the sky is roughly 30 miles above the Earth. That's where the sky is. Now, what is the sky? Well, the sky is a black covering that is made of some kind of material. It's uh, that, that God made this material. It's a covering. It's like a, it's like a canopy over this flat Earth. And the stars are holes in it where the light, which is beyond the heavenly light. He says that the, that the, uh, the heaven itself is a place, and he quotes the Bible to prove this, of infinite light and uh, infinite majesty and uh, fantastic, uh, brilliant scenes and so on. And, and the stars that we see are actually indications of heaven, that that is uh, holes in this canopy, and we're actually seeing the light of heaven through these holes. Well, that's interesting. Uh, the stars, in other words, are about 30 miles above the earth. Now, what about the sun? What is that? He says the sun is, is, is very interesting. The sun moves from, from left to right across this thing. It moves back and forth, and the sun, and he quotes again the Bible, some obscure passage in the Bible, uh, that the sun is, is actually crea was created by the earth by the by God to heat the earth and to, to give light to the earth and so the sun is about 26 to 27 miles above the earth and it moves across well now uh, any other any other doctrine was completely uh, um, untenable so naturally they had to do a lot of things in that town for one thing they did not allow any optical equipment of of any type to be owned by any inhabitant if any inhabitant was ever found with a telescope <laughs> for example if you were found with a telescope in that town you were not only drummed out of that religion 
but uh, you were not allowed in the town after that because the the uh, this religious crowd owned the town it was their town the guy was kicked out and he couldn't come back so there were other things if you were caught smuggling for example smuggling into the town you know what one of the great capital offenses was you could be arrested and not only arrested you could be fined you know fantastic amounts of money and probably given five years for a capital punishment if you were found sneaking into town with a copy of National Geographic you imagine National Geographic now, now wait a minute think about it for you can see why and and uh, oh another thing one of the worst blasphemies of all was to was to uh, bring into town a globe a globe you know the kind you have in libraries so they had their own globes made up and and one of the great collectors items around there in that area was to have a globe from that town that was created by a factory they had which created all these textbooks and stuff and you'd be surprised what their globe looked like it was a fantastic globe it was you know it had a, had a you know the stand that a globe is on it has all the numbers and all that and the latitude and longitude it had all that stuff see it had, it had this 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 curious looking uh, stand but in the middle of the it had two spindles went down and here was the globe the globe was a round flat disk beautifully painted that had oceans all over it had oceans and had Europe painted on it it had uh, Asia painted on it and uh, uh, by the way uh, the earth he believed ended just on the other side of Tibet if you continued past Tibet it was all over and he said in fact that one of the reasons why Mount Everest at that time had never been climbed was because that was the end of the earth and, and man was not destined to get that high and uh, so that was painted on the edge you could see Mount Everest uh, painted on the edge of it there and so people used to <laughs> people used to get these globes and it was considered a great uh, hip uh, Christmas gift to give your friend a globe from that particular religious sect and the center of the earth was that town the spindle went right through it when he was asked about the North Pole he said, well, that's the edge of the earth. That's the other edge. He said, that's not, the, that's no pole. That's ridiculous. The earth, by the way, is stationary in his religion. And uh, it did not spin any of this stuff. The, the, the sun moved back and forth. The moon went back and forth. And uh, so he believed this stuff. So you, you can just see what kind of, what kind of uh, characters that they, that they created out there. Uh, listen, I could go on for, for uh, a long, you ever hear of New Friendship, Indiana? Have you ever heard of New Harmony, Indiana? These are all places where where the most fantastic experiments were tried. <laughs> oh yeah, New Harmony, Indiana was based on free love. Well, of course, any any concept that's based on you know what free love means, you know. Well, this any outfit that's based on free love, within 15 minutes of its founding, winds up in gunfire. <laughs> Human beings being what they are, it's a fact. And that's what happened to New Harmony. And so you can go down to New Harmony, you can go down to New Friendship. Uh, oh, I could, I can give you, have you ever heard of uh, New Jerusalem, Indiana? That was another fantastic place. Where outside of New Jerusalem, they believed that it was the chosen land. Uh, they believed that they had found the land of milk and honey. So they named it New Jerusalem. These were the early settlers out there. And, and so they, they, they called everything around New Jerusalem with biblical names. So, uh, you know, over there is Mount Ararat, 
Uh, over here is uh, <laughs> yeah. Over here is, is is the Red Sea. You know, they're pointing down to that, that little muddy lake down there and <laughs> various things. So so uh, th this uh, this if you think that this is a land out there of uh, conservative people, you just simply don't know that area there. The practically all the the communal living and and in experiments in communism were done in places like Kansas and Indiana. And uh, on a weekend, I remember the old man. I'll give you all, all awards your brass figlegi with a bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of that kingdom. They were famous. And uh, on the, the weekend, the old man would say, uh, you know, we get out in the Oldsmobile, and he says, uh, well, uh, what would you like to do? Would you like to go into the Lincoln Park Zoo today? How about that? Eh, you know, you can, you, you know, you just get so much of a zoo, you know, after a while, after you've seen one camel, you've seen them all, you know. Then he says, well, uh, how would you like to go out to the forest preserve and have a picnic? Eh. Eh. Well, let's see. What do we do? Uh, how would you like to go to the kingdom today? Would you like to drive out to the kingdom and, and uh, see all those funny houses, those guys with the beards? And then, you know, hey, you know, uh, we dig that, see. And then uh, he'd say, well, uh, either that, how would you like to go to the flat earthers? Would you like to go out there where, uh, you know, where they believe in the flat earth and all that stuff? So we would debate, and, we, you know, we, they were all various types of zoo when you want to face it, uh, you know, realistically. <laughs> so uh, that guy building statues of his own family, of his wife and himself throughout their entire history, you know, 45 statues all sitting there making love to each other and then leaving it to the town and then finally saying, I didn't know that town a damn thing. That is classically Midwestern, classically. Next, John Wingate and Nightbeat. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.